Take your Bible and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We operate on the premise every day, every hour, every moment. We operate on the premise that God can change lives. We have to. We must. Otherwise, there is no reason for us to meet on Sundays. There is no reason for us to send out mission teams. There is no reason for us to personally witness each day. We must believe that God can change lives. And we also have to believe that our lives have been changed. For us to be an effective witness of Christ, for us to be able to declare the glory of God, somehow we've got to have experienced that in ourselves. Uh, this afternoon, um, Brother Dale sent me an email on preaching, and I was reading through it, around five-ish or so, and uh, read a quote by Philip Brooks, Prince of Preachers, known as the uh, guy who gives us the definition of preaching itself, truth through personality, if you will. And he says, Philip, Philip Brooks says, nothing but fire kindles fire. To know in one's whole nature what it is to live by Christ, to be his, not our own, to be so occupied with gratitude for what he did for us and for what he continually is to us that his will and his glory shall be the sole desires of our life, he says. In other words, we, if we're going to proclaim that God can change lives, if we're going to go out and we're going to speak about this good news of Christ then we have got to have experienced it ourselves. We've got to experience how God changes our own lives. And thus we can speak with passion and authenticity about this God who changes lives because we know for ourselves what he has done. God can change lives. And he can change any life, no matter what that life looks like. God can take it and he can change it. I want to give you tonight three case studies of how God can change lives. Three studies, if you will, of how God can intervene in a person's life. You remember a few weeks ago, the last time I was here on Sunday night, I guess, when we came together and talked about how Paul and his missionary team had their own plans, how they had planned to go into a certain area, and yet God said no. God said no. He prevented them from following their own plans. And what he did through this dream, through this Macedonian man and his summoning of Paul, he calls him to this Greek area, in particular, Philippi. And that's where we pick up in the story is Paul and this missionary team, as they take the gospel of Christ to Philippi. It says in verse 11, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of the part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. So they listen to God. God has said, you come through this Macedonian man. He has said, you go and take the gospel to this Macedonia area, to this Greek area, to Philippi. So they listen to God. They go and they go to the city again, Philippi, which is Luke identifies it as a foremost city of the part of Macedonia. Notice it says in verse 13, And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where a prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. 
Now, what is Paul's strategy when he goes into an area? If you've been through the book of Acts and you've read through it, you understand that his strategy is to go into a city, a city that's well populated, go to a synagogue, because there he could establish a relationship with the Jewish people. They had a background in who the Messiah, the Christ, would be. And he would go in and he would preach and he would share the good news of Christ. Now, here at Philippi, he goes down to the riverside. So, obviously, clearly, there's not a very large Jewish contingency, if any at all. There's no synagogue. Because in that day and time, if you had ten men who were Jewish, you had to have a synagogue in that area. So there are probably less than 10 men who are Jewish in this area. These women who are down by the riverside, who are meeting, it says, for prayer, represent the closest thing he can think of, the closest thing he can think of to a group of individuals worshiping in the synagogue. So he goes down and he finds them. And he builds that bridge. Obviously, these individuals were what could be identified in the book of Acts as God-fearers. In other words, they understood the Yahweh God. They understood who the God of Israel was. But they had not come through all of the customs and all the traditions to become fully Jewish. And it says that they sat down and they began to talk with these women. Verse 14, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So we're introduced to Lydia, a woman of some means. If, they were, if you were a seller of purple, that meant that you came from some means. You had some substance about yourself. And Lydia hears the message that is brought by Paul and his team. A few years ago, as I was sitting at Unity Baptist Church outside of Tupelo, you'd have to go way back in the woods, kind of where they pump in the sunshine. That's where Leslie was raised in her home church, by the way. But if you, I was sitting in Unity Baptist Church, and I was listening to a pastor preach. And he preached on this passage. And he talked about the different types of people that you find here that... God touched. God changed their lives. I use the word case studies, but for him, he used the different types of personalities. I never forget the way he identified it. And so I'm going to borrow his outline, okay? I don't do that very often, but I'm going to borrow his outline because it was very memorable for me. He spoke of Lydia and he talked about how God could change the tender heart. Lydia, she's already got some type of relationship with God. She's already recognized that the God of Israel is the God above all. So she has somewhat of a tender heart. In other words, she has some kind of, some kind of association, affiliation with the Jewish people and the God of heaven. So he goes and he begins to build that bridge and he talks to her. And what do you think he talks to her about? Well, if you know Paul and you've understood his sermons and his messages, what is he going to do? He's going to talk about Jesus being the Christ, the fulfillment of the promise, how God had been working very progressively through the nation of Israel to bring forth salvation for the world in Jesus. And it says that she hears this, and that she, her heart is opened to it by God. Notice that? 
the Lord opened her heart. I think God always takes the initiative in salvation. I think he always does. I think God somehow has to come into our life. And as the word is spoken, the gospel is spoken to a person. I believe God has to bring conviction and bring the opening that is necessary. Now, I do believe we make our own decisions. But I believe that salvation is always initiated with God. The very concept of salvation, the very story of salvation, well, it was initiated with God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? It wasn't because we initiated it. It was because God saw us in our need and sent Jesus for us. He knew who we were. Again, before the foundations of the earth, he knew what we would do. And he had a plan. He's not been reactive. He's always been proactive. And he sent Christ for us. Well, in our own personal experiences, God comes to open our hearts to the word of salvation. Many of you in this place have gotten to know you a little better. And for most of you, I like you a little better. Just kidding. Most all of you, I think I like you better. But I believe that many of you in this place, most of you probably have accepted Christ as your Savior. Do you remember God opening your heart? Do you remember the conviction that was there? You see, it's not just a decision to say, hey, you know what? I think today I'm feeling like I'm just going to go get saved. No. It is a decision we make. But it is God coming into our hearts, convicting us and breaking us of our sin. Now, it can look different. In different people, in different lives. We'll see that here in these case studies. You might have been an 8-year-old or 9-year-old. And all you knew was, I know I've messed up. And I know I need forgiveness. And I believe that Jesus died and rose again. And I commit myself to him. You might have been 30. And you may have realized that for all of those years, you were living in your own desires and your own wants and never fully serving him. And yet God convicted you. And God said, you know that you're lost. You could, you could hear it almost as if it were an audible voice in your life. And you came and you committed your life to Christ. God takes the initiative. And God can save you. And if you're a tender-hearted individual, and you may have somewhat of an association with God already, an affection for God. It's kind of like a young man at Blue Springs told me one time. He said, it wasn't that I was against God, but I recognized I was not for God. I thought I could just live my life doing the things I wanted to, but I realized that I had never given my all to Him. That's God's conviction and God opening our hearts. It says that Lydia, her heart was open to heed the things that were spoken by Paul how dependent I am and you are each and every day of our lives that God would prepare the way for his gospel to lodge in another person's heart and life. I can't force it in. Sunday mornings when I come to preach and speak, I can declare the gospel, but I can't make somebody or force somebody to accept Christ. Oh, I'd love to. 
Do you know how many times I wished I could have run back and grabbed a person from the pew and brought them to the front and said, this is what you're going to do? But that is not the way the gospel operates. It is not the way salvation occurs. God has to prepare the way. And for you, as you, as you speak to somebody tomorrow, you must pray that God would prepare the heart and the life so that they would receive the words of life. It says, again, verse 15, And when she heard, when she and her whole household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. And God saved the tender heart. Look at it. She believed. She followed Christ. She was baptized. It says her whole household. I don't believe you can read in this infant baptism. Some people try to, but I don't think it is. It meant the others somehow had heard the gospel as well, and they had responded through conviction, and they had been saved as well. And God changes the life of Lydia. And she says, hey, if you really believed I'm, believe I'm saved... Stay in my household. Again, a woman that has some means, that has a place, that has a household where the missionary team could stay. She said, if you really believe me, stay. Well, verse 16. Look at the second case study because really they all operate together. It says, it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. Here's a girl. It says that has a spirit, has a demonic spirit. Literally, it says... Um, here, she has a python spirit. If you were to look at the original language, it would speak of like a python spirit. Python being associated with the god Apollo and somehow being associated with this idea of being able to tell the future. Before kings or others would go into war, of course, Apollo, they would seek him and they would try to find out, are we going to be successful? We need you to tell us, will we win this battle. It was all about fortune telling. And somehow this girl could tell the future because of a demonic spirit inside. She was what this preacher called a terrorized heart. A terrorized heart. Her heart literally experienced terror day by day as this demonic spirit had its way with her. But Paul greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. The power of God. That here's this girl who is going through this, is going through this terrorized life. Difficult life. Struggling. Demonic spirit having control. This girl encounters the power and the presence of Jesus Christ and God delivers her in peace. Well, you can believe what you want about de demons and demonic possession, but I'm going to tell you this. 
We have a lot of people walking around in terrorized lives today. All around us. All around us. Now, I'm not one to go and look and try to find a demon behind every bush. But I am going to tell you, demonic possession is still real. Demonic influence is still real. And there are people that are terrorized this day. I can tell you individuals who have struggled, for example, with with drugs and alcohol and all kinds of things. And it is like a power that consumes them that they cannot be free of. They struggle day in and day out. And they are in our families. They are in our communities. They are in our church, whether you want to believe it or not. My friends, God can change the terrorized life. I believe it. I wouldn't preach it. I wouldn't teach it. I wouldn't try to call people to repentance. I would not even begin to suggest it unless I believe that God can change life. And he can bring peace to that life that has experienced nothing but terror. It says that it came out of her that very hour. Well, but when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Could you imagine what kind of money you could make on an individual that could tell the future? I mean, you'd have people lined up. You'd have a wealthy source of income. And it says here that's really what they do. They use this girl. They use this girl. Look at the culture around us. Again, we have a culture that we're living in that will use anybody and anything. What do we always say? That we ought to value people and use things. But our culture says we use people and value things. And that's the culture in which they're living. Because their concern is not for this girl and how she has been changed and the peace that she's found rather she's they're concerned that they're about to lose their income and it says they brought these disciples or these missionaries to the magistrates and said these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You want to say somebody got mad? You want to see how they recognize the losses that they were about to take financially? So it motivated them to lie. It motivated them to bring such charges. And the missionaries, the disciples who were guilty of nothing more than allowing God to use them to change this girl's life. Well, they're thrown into prison after they're beaten. Well, verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Does that surprise any of you? I mean, we just saw these missionaries beaten and imprisoned. 
And the very next verse says that at midnight, at midnight, they're praying and singing hymns to God. Now, I'm going to be honest. I want to veer just a moment from this idea of changing lives. Let me just say this. I'm not sure I could have done that. I'll just be honest with you. I'm not sure I could have done this. First of all, I probably wouldn't have been up at midnight. But second of all, I'm not sure I would have been singing. Now, I might have been praying, but my prayers would have been more like complaints. God, you told me to come here. Because get this, they're in Philippi. Why? Because God directed them. God was the one that placed them there. There's no doubt. They, they, they don't have one of these moments where they sit around and say, now I wonder if we should have really been here. Maybe this is something we shouldn't have been doing. They have no doubt. God spoke to them through this vision. I mean, they know where they're supposed to be. They've seen lives changed. They've seen a tender heart and a terrorized heart receive the peace of God. So God, we're here. We're doing what you ask us to do. And we're in prison. That's the way I probably would have responded. But you know, God never promised us that everything would be easy in our ministry or mission. God never did that. God never called us to a place where, where we just go about our business. Whatever that is. God calls us to be faithful to Him. And I know this sounds difficult. I had a friend who called me a while back and they were... They were going to go down to Nicaragua and do some things. And at that time, the earthquakes were happening down there. They were going to take their child with them. And they said, well, what do you think we should do? First of all, I didn't like getting all caught up in another ministry and another church's life. So I said to them what I thought was a very wise, discerning, keep me out of it kind of thing way. And I said, you know what? It's always better to be in God's will. It's always safer to be in God's will than out of God's will. If God called you to go to Nicaragua, go to Nicaragua. It's safer in the earthquake than it is out of the earthquake. They said, that sounds like you ain't got a kid going on this trip. <clears throat> I said, there's a lot of truth in what I said. You listen to it. And you think about whether God wants you to go or not. You know what? It's better to be in the prison faithful than to be out of the prison doing your own thing. Paul and Silas recognized that. And they were praying and they were singing. What a witness and what a testimony. Could you imagine those soldiers, those individuals that are supposed to be keeping them in that jail, can you imagine their response? That you have beaten them and you've imprisoned them, and what are they doing? They're praying and they're singing. What a testimony. Well, somehow that testimony 
coupled with God's prayer, again, makes a difference. As God demonstrates his power, that is. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. The keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. So here's God. He sends this earthquake. It opens the door, looses the chains. The guy that's in charge, he thinks they're gone. They've escaped. He knows what is facing him. If they've escaped and they were under his charge, then death was certain for him. So he just wells to go ahead and to make this easy until Paul calls out. says, here we are. As he comes in to check, looking around, he asked them this question, verse 30. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Remember, this is the only verse that you find in the New Testament where that question is directly asked in such a manner. Now, don't get me wrong. Other passages do teach us how to be saved. We know that. Other passages will speak to the salvation process. But this is the only time in all of the New Testament where a person comes and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And look at the response. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household. Notice, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all, that's all they say. They don't say believe and then be baptized. They don't say believe and do all of these good works. They say believe. In other words, have faith. Remember that this is the verb for faith. Faith the Lord Jesus Christ, trust Him with all that you've got, surrender yourself to Him, submit yourself to Him, the idea is, and you will be saved. God's promise. Now, do works naturally flow from our faith? Yes. If we're faithful, if we're seeking Him, we are going to want to obey Him and do His work. But faith, is the way of salvation. Faith, you will be saved, and then you and all of your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Because get this. God can change the life of a tough heart. A tough heart. Can you imagine... Meeting anybody else any tougher during the New Testament period than this jailer? I mean, from all that you read, from all that you understand of such a man, he would have been more than tough. And yet God changed his life. It says that he goes home and he washes their wounds. And he attends to their wounds. Amazing. What a change has occurred in this man. He goes and he follows the Lord and he's baptized. 
and so is his family. When they had brought them into his house, he set food before them. Get this. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. God changed his life. Changed the heart of a tough man. Again, God can change lives. The tender hearted, the person that kind of knows God, knows a little bit about God. God can change the terrorized heart, the, the heart that seems to be struggling and in conflict day to day. God can change the old tough heart. That individual you think will never, ever come. God can do it. His power strong enough. His gospel effective enough. I remember one Sunday at Canaan Baptist Church. I may have told you this, but get ready. You're going to hear some repeats after a while, okay? Canaan Baptist Church, we ran about 50 every Sunday. That's ministerially speaking, probably. Wonderful congregation of people, though. I love them, and they love me, and it was a wonderful time there for just this very brief time in my ministry. One Sunday morning, I was preaching, and I remember thinking to myself as I got ready to close that it wasn't a very good sermon. I wasn't even sure if anybody had listened. I looked up to my left because, look, a group of 40 or 50 people, small church, I can tell anything's going. No, also, I can tell lots goes on in here as well. Just know. I'd seen Kelly Jemison. Seen her talking to her mom and daddy all through the service, all through my message. It kind of irritated me. Be honest, I was like, why is she not listening? Why? I mean, I prepared this, I have this. Back then, I used to uh, use more of a manuscript kind of form, and I was, I mean, I had it down. She didn't listen. So I was kind of in a bad spirit when I got down to give the invitation because I thought people just had tuned me out that day, and I agree, it wasn't the best, but I'd worked. So when I stood to give the invitation, Kelly ran from the pew that she was sitting on. She ran down front. I thought, well, she's coming to ask me to, for forgiveness or something other, you know. Her parents told her to get down there and apologize to the preacher for what she's been doing. She said, I want to be saved. I said, what? She said, I've got to be saved. I've been sitting there all this time saying, I've got to go and I've got to be saved. So I prayed with her to accept the Lord as her Savior. I looked up, a couple more came, wanted to be saved. I thought, what in the world? And then looked up at Kelly's granddad, Mr. West. He was in his 60s or so. <clears throat> he was a tough guy. You knew it when you saw him. Still had the flat top, had jeans he wore to church. He still rolled his sleeves. Some of you know what I'm talking about. 
who looked like he was doing a little dance. He looked like he would step in, he would step out of the pew. Step in, step out. He was doing it. I can remember it to this day. And all I did is I looked at him and I just shook my head yes. And Mr. West came down. So what's going on, Mr. West? He said, I need to be saved. He had never been saved, never been baptized, never had people about giving up on him in a sense. He said, I need to be saved. Before it was all said and done, there were five. Five out of a group of about 45 that were saved that day. I can't tell you exactly why. It was one of the poorest sermons I'd ever preached. I was not in the best attitude or spirit about things. But God in his mercy and grace and power did a work. And I remember that day saying, God can change lives. And he can take the tender heart. He can take the terrorized heart. He can take the old tough heart. He can save. But that's exactly what Dr. Luke said. Acts chapter 16. Giving us all these different case studies just to remind us. It doesn't matter who. It doesn't matter what. It doesn't matter the background. It doesn't matter the personality. It doesn't matter all of the differences that you find. God can save. And we believe that as a church, I hope, and as people. We believe that the different people who come, sit on these pews each and every Sunday, they can be saved. Those who are lost, they can be saved. Whoever they are, whatever they look like. We believe if we go to Nicaragua, we go to Hungary, we go to India, wherever we are, we go to Chicago, we go to Los Angeles, we believe that they can be saved because God can change lives. And that is our belief. That is our confidence in Christ. And that is the reason we keep going. And it is the reason we keep preaching. It is the reason we keep sharing. We don't have people just flood there. We keep preaching. And we keep sharing. We keep going. Because God can change lives. Tonight I pray. That you would join me. That we would ask God to continue to show us how he changes lives. And that he would build the fire within us. The passion. That would ignite in such a way. That we would be people who naturally testify. His goodness, His greatness in our lives. Our God, He can change us. Exhibit A, Exhibit B through Z and beyond, He can change lives. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, one, for changing our lives. God, we admit tonight in this place that we would be desperate without hope. We would be bound to a place called hell. And yet, Lord, you in your mercy and your grace, you saved us. And Father, whether we're in the midst of the earthquake or we're in the midst of the prison or we're in the midst of the city declaring your name, I pray that we'd be faithful. Pray, Lord, that we would just allow that fire and that passion to just flow from us. God, tonight in this place, 
I don't ever take it for granted, Lord. I believe that there's some here that could be lost. And God, I pray you'd save them. You'd speak to them. You'd open their hearts. You'd let the word lodge within them. That through Christ, their trust and their belief in him, they can come to forgiveness and salvation. God, for those of us who are saved, may we just simply rededicate ourselves, recommit ourselves to your mission. Take the invitation. Use it now. In Jesus' name.